Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Now We're Talking. My name is Rob Danish. I'm a professor of communication at the University of Waterloo, and this is a podcast about communication skills. Uh, this is episode 104 of Now We're Talking. And um, here in Canada, we're finally sort of moving to reopen after what feels like a year and a half or a year, longer than a year of, of lockdowns and COVID-19 pandemic response. Uh, in the United States, I think they're a little ahead of us in terms of reopening. Um, and because of that, like one question I've been getting from several of my former students is about uh, what's going to happen when all of us return to in-person work. Are we all going to be awkward communicators? Uh, are there going to be a lot of awkward conversations? Or people have will people have forgotten how to talk to one another in professional settings? Uh, will people have forgot to talk to one another in personal settings? Will we just not know how to get along with friends we haven't seen for a while in person? What's going to happen? Um, and my students had asked me, you know, well, what do you, what kinds of communication tips might you have as we reintegrate into in-person life after an, a year, year and a half, uh, in this kind of like remote, everything online sort of setting? So I want to talk about today about a simple distinction that I think would be would be enormously helpful in reintegrating people into uh, normal, everyday, face-to-face interactions. And it, its origins are not in um, it, as a response to a kind of absence of, of people, but I think it's a really telling or helpful kind of guidepost for making sure you have effective, good, positive conversations. And what I've been thinking um, is that when we when we do reintegrate ourselves into in-person uh, learning, in-person work, in-person family gatherings, in-person social activities, I think the biggest challenge we're going to face is a listening challenge. Uh, so, And the reason I think the biggest challenge we're going to face is a listening challenge is because I think we're going to be so preoccupied by what we're supposed to say and how we're supposed to say it that we're just going to ignore the other person we're talking to and have this kind of internal... Uh, monologue about, well, should I say this? Should I say that? Was that the wrong thing? Is that the right thing to say? I don't remember. Like, I don't even remember this person, how they how they normally interact with me. So you're going to be kind of have this intense inner monologue of anxiety when you return to in-person communication. Um, and whenever that's in place, you get poor listening habits. So you're not really listening to what the other person has to say. And poor listening habits are really destructive for conversation and for dialogue. So I want to talk today about a simple and powerful uh, distinction in terms of listening um, that will help. And if we stay on the right side of this distinction, we're going to do better when we reintegrate into normal in-person activities. And if we don't, we're going to do we're going to do worse. And the distinction I want to talk about um, is what the sociologist Charles Derber, who's from Boston College, um, described as support responses versus shift responses in conversation. Uh, so in the 1970s, so this is kind of old research, but it's enduring and, and true and, and useful. So since the in the, in the 1970s, Derber uh, was interested in how people behave and how they compete for attention in social settings. And so I think that's what's going to happen. Like, we're not going to know how to get other people's attention in a, so, a social situation. We're going to want it. 
So we're going to try and talk in ways that get attention. So what he did is he recorded and transcribed a hundred informal dinner conversations. And in those dinner conversations, he kind of saw a pattern between two different kinds of responses and uh, to a statement by someone. So how people responded to someone else's talk. He saw the most common kind of response, which he described as a shift response. And a shift response is when someone directs attention away from the person speaking and back toward the respondent or the listener. Um, the shift response was people what were was an indication that people wanted to steal the spotlight from the other person that was doing the talking. Okay, so the less common response, and this became um, Charles Derber's kind of like enduring contribution to interpersonal communication, at, at least, was what he called the support response. And a support response encourages elaboration from the person doing the speaking. And a support response helps the person, the responder, gain a better understanding of the person doing the speaking. So let's start with some really, really simple examples of the difference. And, and I don't think this episode is going to take very long. It's like a super simple distinction, uh, but it's a, a powerful one. So let's start with a couple of examples between... Um, a shift response and a support response. So here's something I said to someone recently. Um, I accidentally left the gate to my backyard open and my dog got out last week. And then it took us like three hours to find our dog. I didn't know where he went. Here is a shift response. So, and this is what actually happened in the course of my conversation. So the other person says back to me, you know, my dog's always digging under the fence, so we can't even let him out in the backyard sometimes without a leash on or, or on his own. Okay, that's a shift response. Yes, it's disclosure about the person's dog, the, the respondent's dog, but you've shifted attention away from the original statement made by the, the first person to yourself. So you've shifted attention away from the speaker to you, the respondent. And as we reintegrate ourselves into in-person interactions, I have a feeling that you're going to see an awful lot of shift responses in the course of conversation. So if someone says to you, you know, my pandemic wasn't so bad. I really like being at home. I really like working from home. I was super productive. And you say, well, my pandemic really sucked. I couldn't get any work done from home. My kids were home all the time. My partner was home all the time. Everybody was on the computer. I had no quiet space. It was awful. That's a shift response. So you've you've pivoted away from the original speaker toward yourself. You've given it a shift response. Shift responses are extraordinarily common. If you're listening to this, you know, in the next in the course of your next few social conversations, try and identify how often you see shift responses in the back and forth that goes on. Um, okay, here's an alternative, what um, Derber was calling a support response. So I say, you know, my dog last week, I, I left the back gate open, my dog got out, and it took us like three hours to find him. Here's a support response. Oh, no. Where did you finally find him? Did he come back to the house? Did, did you find him someplace in the neighborhood? Um, that's a support response because it elicits further um, 
further information, but also it, it asks the original speaker to elaborate so that the listener can get a better understanding of what the speaker is saying. Um, so, okay, let's talk about, let's talk through a couple other examples because this is important and it gets more complicated when the statements get more complicated, I guess. So here's um, something else, you know, something I said to my kids the other day. You know, I watched this really good documentary the other day about cryptocurrencies. And here is my son's response, my 13-year-old son. I don't really like documentaries. I like action films. So you're not going to make us watch that documentary. If we watch anything, we're going to watch some Lord of the Rings or something. Okay. There's a shift response. And it's a really negative shift response. It's a critique of my original statement, even though my, my statement wasn't even asking for a critique, but it's a, it's a strong critique of my original statement. So... Uh, my older son, though, he's he's somewhat more skilled at this, so here's his reaction. So I say to him, you know, I watched this really good documentary about cryptocurrencies the other night. And he says back to me, cryptocurrencies? How did you see that? Are you now interested in investing in cryptocurrencies? So, okay, he's offered me a support response by creating an opportunity for me to elaborate on why I may have watched the documentary, like how I came across it, you know, what interests me about cryptocurrencies now. And here's the thing. Good listeners are all about the support response because the support response is critical to providing the kind of acknowledgement and the kind of feedback um, that other people crave. And it's a way of avoiding the kinds of misunderstandings that happen in the course of conversation. So as we reintegrate ourselves into in-person interactions, social interactions in particular, I think we have a potential minefield of misunderstanding. And the best way to counteract that minefield of misunderstanding is to offer support responses to people's statements and not shift responses. So according to Derber, um, and I confess I've... Um, picked up on and twisted Derber's work in my own work in some ways. Shift responses are, are what Derber calls symptomatic of conversational narcissism, um, which kind of squashes any type of connection. I teach a course in small group communication and in teamwork. I use the phrase communicative narcissism to refer to the kind of person that frequently uses shift responses and the kind of person that sort of refuses to engage with another and only focuses on their own beliefs. Shift responses are almost always self-referential statements and support responses are almost always other directed sort of questions. So it's like really one way to think about it is the difference between responding to a statement someone made with a statement of your own or responding with a question of your own. In a really elementary way, that's, that's what's going on. Um, people that offer... Uh, support responses have to be truly curious. Um, and the, the question that they ask has to elicit more and from, from the other person. And it can't kind of impose an opinion on the other person. Uh, so open-ended questions tend to be support responses. Something like, what was your reaction? Not, didn't that make you angry? Um, because the goal is to understand the speaker's point of view. The goal isn't to sway it or to persuade 
the speaker to see their their own actions or their own uh, statements in a particular way. Uh, I I like to recommend fill in the blank questions as kind of useful forms of of support responses. So if I have a student that says something like, "Yeah, my group and I are fighting a lot," uh, or not getting this assignment done, I might say, "So you and your group fight a lot because," and then stop, leave it at there. Uh, that way, it's kind of like you're hanging handing off a baton because you're allowing the speaker to go in whatever direction that that person wants to go after you've kind of left something open like that. Uh, I also try to avoid asking about like the little kind of details that might kind of throw someone off of their train of thought or their kind of articulating their feelings. So if I say back to the student, were you and your groupmates arguing at the coffee shop or at the library? Where they were when they were arguing, what time it was, you know, none of that really matters as much as what happened and how it felt to the person telling me about it. Um, so I, I think that part of the problem is people like to appear like they know things. So they like to ask questions that suggest that they already might know the answer to something, or they frame a question in a way that prompts the answer, the, the kind of answer that they want. Now, this might not be uh, a shift response to a statement, but it's also not a, a sport, sport response is what I'm trying to get at here. So good questions, good support response questions don't begin with things like, don't you think, or isn't it true that, or wouldn't you agree with me that? Uh, good questions also don't end with right. Like, that was a real problem, right? Uh, these are actually camouflaged, what I would call camouflaged shift responses and, and examples of communicative narcissism. They're more likely to lead others to give an incomplete or a less than honest answer um, to, to you because they're trying to fit their answer to your questions, sort of expect, set of expectations. I think another kind of non-support response are long questions that have lots of qualifying or self-promoting information. Uh, academics are notoriously bad at this, so I see this kind of thing all the time. I'm even guilty of it myself sometimes. So, you know, if I'm at a conference and somebody gives a paper and then I get up and ask a question, I'm like, well, I have a background in rhetoric and communication studies. I'm also the founder of the first year program at my university and teaches communication skills. Uh, and I think, you know, so-and-so is an unrecognized genius in, in communication studies. Um, so I'm wondering if you think we need to think more about this genius uh, in, in the work you're doing. That was, that's like a terrible question. Um, it's a terrible question because it's it's a kind of camouflaged shift response. It masquerades as a support response, but it's actually a shift response trying to get the other person to talk about the things that I want to talk about. Um, beware also of questions that I think contain hidden assumptions. Howard Becker, who was a sociologist, um, you know, there, there's an anecdote about him where you know he's sitting there with someone and he. Um, and someone asked him, what made you decide to become a sociologist? And um, he responds back, well, you're assuming it was a decision. You ought to ask me, how did it happen that you became a sociologist? Uh, he, Becker was like kind of known for embedding himself for months with like a subculture and then writing about them like an insider. And he wrote about jazz musicians, artists, actors, medical students, that kind of thing. Um, and he was like a, an excellent listener. And the way he became an excellent listener is to is that he didn't engage in shift responses. He engaged only in, in support responses. Um, 
anyway, the, the he was a master at the kind of open-ended questions um, that allow the conversation to sort of go anywhere it might go. I think, you know, support responses and kind of open listening, it takes a certain amount of adventurousness and even some courage because you don't know where things are going to end up. And a lot of people, I think, aren't comfortable with support responses, actually. Um, there's a kind of classic gender distinction where some sociologists will argue that men aren't very good at support responses um, and that women are better at, resp at support responses. I'm not sure what I think about that. Um, some evidence suggests women focus more on relational and personal information, and men are more attentive to fact-based information. So women that, that makes women more likely to gain trust um, and be privy to more disclosure. But like for me, like I, I don't see what why any of that matters. Like we can all practice the communication habit of a support response, and we can all practice avoiding shift responses. Um, and I think just doing that um, is sort of enough to uh, ignite a positive social interaction. And it's enough to, it's certainly enough to avoid um, misunderstanding. And it's certainly enough to get you out of your own head long enough to demonstrate a concern for someone else. Um, and I think that's all going to be extremely important when uh, when we reintegrate ourselves into kind of normal social, normal face-to-face -face social interactions. Um, okay, so the lesson this week is practice support responses, not shift responses. Avoid shift responses, practice support responses. That will go a long way to being a kind of catalyst for effective social interactions. Um, and people will feel like you understand them and that they, you, they've they've been heard by you and, and that's a really powerful kind of social component of communication okay anyway that's it for this short episode i'll be back shortly with another episode um another thing i think is going to plague us during uh, our reintegration to face-to-face -face interactions as as we move out of this pandemic and back to normal life anyway thanks everybody for listening i'll be back shortly with another episode